This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today we explore scholarly podcasting, what it is and why it matters. With me is Ian M. Cook, who has recently published the book Scholarly Podcasting, Why, What, How. When I did the analysis of it, I, when I said, what is a scholarly podcast? I said, it's a curiosity generator, which is basically a, a way of saying that, okay, so this is something which is a, it's a practice that helps create the conditions for scholars to follow their curiosity. And I think it's a curiosity feeder. And because they open up new avenues, like when people go along, it's also a creator as well. Ian M. Cook is editor in chief at Allegra Lab. He's an anthropologist whose work focus includes urban India, scholarly podcasting, open education, and environmental injustice. Ian Cook, welcome back to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. Congratulations on your new book. It's uh, a book that sort of cuts close to the heart, I must say, all about podcasting. Can you just sort of tell me what is scholarly podcasting and how it is different from, say, I don't know, regular podcasting? When I did the analysis of it, I, when I said, what is a scholarly podcast? I said, it's a curiosity generator, which is basically a, a way of saying that, okay, so this is something which is a, it's a practice that helps create the conditions for scholars to follow their curiosity. And I think it's a, a curiosity feeder. And because they open up new avenues, like when people go along, it's also a creator as well. And so, and I think that's like sort of interesting in academia or people who are adjacent to academia because very often when we write stuff especially if we're producing stuff for for our cvs basically often unfortunately and we get very narrow foci which is also understandable because people become experts in a very narrow field that's different when you come to make a podcast because often people sort of just you know follow what's interesting to them right because because you know like you know i'm really interested in a person who's somehow related to my research and i want to make, in, interview them for a podcast like and you can just go and do it and like so for that it was it was very good and i think it became or it becomes a generator of curiosity because of the way people ask questions like you know through conversations or through storytelling or through listening but also um as the way it's uh, published as well so it's not like going through these very slow proceeds and so on it's an interesting you know sort of a wide angle definition of what scholarly podcasting is and i guess it sort of crosses the boundaries of people inside and outside higher education you used scholarly adjacent because you know you don't have to be a professor or a student of higher education to be involved in scholarly podcasting it seems right i mean so joe rogan is sort of one extreme sure but there's so many other podcasts of that are created by individuals who aren't in the university but would be sort of in a scholarly pursuit right so i'm i'm thinking for me the classic example is the podcast in our time it's like a bbc show but now of course as podcast and the host brings three different scholars together but the host himself is not necessarily a in a university setting but it's a very academically oriented podcast yeah and i would say i mean but but again the in our time it started off as a radio show it's so old it started off even before podcast existed i would say it's a it's, it's an interesting example because yeah it's always free academics sitting around but it's it has a different orientation in a sense because they're in a rush because they always have to fit within the 45 minutes of the show because no but really like which is actually very different like than than the way we're having a conversation now right because we're having a conversation and maybe you know you didn't really like the start of my answer when i got a bit confused and then i went back and said no it's a curiosity generator 
you just might just edit edit out the other stuff I've said, and uh, we can you know be more relaxed. So I think that also changes the uh, the contours a little bit as well. But I should also mention that the book I basically interviewed 101 scholars who make um, podcasts who are scholarly adjacent, shall we say, and back in 2020. And um, and then what I did was then I, you know, transcribed them all, listened to them all, because I think also working from a transcript isn't great when you're, when you're working with audio because you can actually hear, you know, people's emotions and inflections and so on. And then I curated all of these interviews un- under certain headings. And I bought some with me today uh, to show you, or show is not the right word, is it, to, to play for you. So maybe we can uh, listen to the first one, because then it's like, because then it maybe answers the question in a different way. And the first one I want to play you is by Michaela Benson, and she used to make a podcast called Brexit Brits Abroad, and I am a Brexit Brit abroad. Excellent. I'll pull up the first clip. But I think it's also fair to say we're working in a landscape where um, the public are asking questions about academic research and how to navigate that you know, how to produce academic research for the public in responsible and ethical ways is something that I really think that we need to take control of. And it's a conversation that we need to be part of, because there are plenty of people who are using their alleged academic expertise to quite different ends, shall we say, without wanting to get too judgmental about them or moralize. And I think that's the kind of, it's they're interesting questions um, about the role of kind of intellectual work in public life and, and how you do that. And there are obviously different scales at which that happens. But it is, it's a real tension, that kind of thing of, you know, you want to communicate complex understandings, because this, but this is actually a public landscape that doesn't encourage complex understandings. So if you can't come up with your, you know, your your two minute spiel, then you're off, you're off mainstream media, first of all, you're out of the Guardian, you're, you know, that you're not, you're not, you know, which is probably the only, the only side of mainstream media that you might even want to consider being part of. And there's someone else uh, occupying that space uh, and communicating that knowledge. And the great thing about podcasting is because it's not really mainstream, there is still a space for that more complex understanding to communicate. To kind of to, to come across you know I've written for the conversation I've written for open democracy and th- there are questions about who's in control of the nation of the knowledge production there in the same way as you'd have with mainstream broadcast journalism you know who is doing the editing at that stage I've written for the BBC the edit- that was a fascinating process but you know there is a danger that those complex understandings get written out under the guise of making things accessible. And so in a way, being able to control the medium, so being able to control the content of the podcast is quite useful in some respects. That's a really interesting insight that Michaela mentions about who gets to control the production of knowledge. What did you take from that interview with her? Yeah, so this is, I think, um, we're going back to the, the what of academic podcasting, right? So it's great because, you know, you've really got the time to go comp to deep dive into a topic in a complex way and what's endlessly fascinating to me is that people do listen to these podcasts you know like uh, and you know I found myself partly because I did this research but anyway just you know you find some podcast and you're quite happy to spend you know one two three hours like over a series on a topic which you knew nothing about before and which uh, you're hearing from the horse's mouth you know directly which is 
absolutely fascinating. So it means you're basically publishing without gatekeepers, right? And also, but with the voices present of the people there as well talking through. You can even hear it in the way she was speaking then, right? You can also hear that in a podcast because, you know, when Michaela was like, obviously like in an interview with me and she was like, obviously wanting to judge somebody although she didn't she just had a bit of a laugh about it you know and like you can hear all of that which is also great as well i think like in terms of like you know so you you actually hear the human and the scholar as well i usually refer to it as open science it sort of pushes podcasting allows or scholarly podcasting allows sort of new directions in open science where where we get to you know not necessarily be controlled by editors but we also get to put out full interviews that we might then chop up and use in different ways for a book like yourself, where you've taken clips and put them into the actual written text. You also have the ability to play the whole episode as a way of sort of sharing the data and, you know, quote unquote, sharing the data for others to then interpret in their own ways. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think also you can see with the desire of people to understand what academics do, um, because there's a lot of distrust of academia or, or scholarly knowledge, some of it justifiable, some of it a bit right-wing conspiracy theorist. But I, what I think is really great is, especially because you're hearing not only the, whatever, the final product, which is what we produce, you know, when we write a paper for a journal, you know, we get this very sort of tight, well-argued, hopefully, you know, watertight argument put out there in the world. And what's obscured in that is all of the drafts and the thinking and all of these processes along the way. And I think by opening up the knowledge creation process um so open science which really you can see the data especially you know in disciplines such as ours where we're, a lot of it is about thinking and a lot of it is about conversation then people can see the steps along the way how we made those arguments and then people can listen to the data you know and also make their own conclusions as well and i think that's really really important not only to make good science should we say but also politically as well so that people can actually see why it is we we reached where we want to be do you know how big this sort of area of scholarly podcasting is like number of shows or number of listeners around the world like how do we even begin to quantify it yeah so when i first started this project it was in like in 2017 and i very naively thought i would just in the beginning i was just mapping scholarly podcasts you know excel table and i was like listening to them made some notes but there was more being produced than i could listen to and especially in, and i was like okay if i just contain myself just to anthropology or just to sociology or just to a certain part of the world maybe you could get a handle on it but still not then because especially i mean as i'm sure you know lots of people start podcasting and they stop right and then uh, so it's also hard and things disappear and it is very hard so i had more of a snowball approach i put out feelers and then people got back in touch with me and then when there was areas that were missing like if I didn't have a mathematician then I would hunt down a maths you know there's more in history and there's because it, the medium lends itself more to these sorts of uh, disciplines right than it just necessarily to maths although there's a, there's a great maths podcast called my favorite theorem and they basically interview mathematicians about you know and it basically humanizes the mathematician and it's great and like there is there are there are, there are loads of stuff but in terms of like how big they are it, it goes from podcast to podcast so maybe I can play you one by Vincent uh, Racciniello and he does a podcast called This Week in Virology and as you might imagine that podcast is massive because people became very interested in viruses <laughs> in the last couple of years but if you listen to that it's a short clip and, uh, and he sort of explains his relationship to knowing who his audience is. I could list a hundred reasons why downloads are not important but I'll only name a few here. 
I think first, the main beneficiary of your podcast is you. So if you're learning from it, networking with it, and most importantly, having fun, then that's really the most important. I know it sounds cheesy, but it's 100% true. And there's not really much you can do about download numbers. I've tried everything, mainstream media pickup, plugging on other podcasts, promoting at every talk I give, and nothing moves the numbers significantly in any direction. It's really about the quality, not quantity of your audience. If your podcast is reaching 50 people, but they are peers or students in your field, your content is going directly into their ears and they're going to be appreciative. One email about how much someone appreciates your podcast is worth thousands of downloads. And even with a small audience, I get those emails quite regularly. And I think it's also important to visualize your downloads as people in a room. After five years, my core audience is maybe 500 people, but imagine speaking to an audience of 500 people in person. Most of us will never have that opportunity in an academic setting, but with podcasting, I do it regularly. So I check the downloads every now and then just to make sure nothing's wrong with the podcast technically, but I've really come to view downloads as otherwise not important. That's some really interesting insights there because, you know, trying to even know who your audience is, trying to know who the fresh ed audience is, is, is actually really quite hard to do. You know, you just, on my end as a podcaster, you just sort of put these things out into the world and you just have no clue how they get taken up or in what ways. And it's nice to hear Vincent sort of reflect on the same way. He actually sounds amazed by the people he ends up reaching. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to listen? There's, I also have a clip from this guy called Will Brem. He has a podcast called Fresh Ed. We can see how much your voice has aged in living in London for three years. Yeah, so we, we've actually surveyed our listenership. And what we know basically is that a third are students, a third are teachers, and not just university teachers, but also secondary and primary school teachers. And then a third are what I guess you could call development practitioners, so people who work for the World Bank, people who work for the UN, people who work for NGOs. And they each group sort of uses the podcast in different ways, of course. For me, what's interesting is the development practitioners. What we understand is they simply don't have time or access to academic literature. They don't have the time to read it. They don't have the access to it. Um, but they know how important it is to inform their practice. And so the podcast is sort of a really great way for them to learn about new ideas in education and sort of help them identify which papers they should actually spend more time reading. I think that's interesting what you say, right? I mean, going back to the question of open science, it's like there are a bunch of people who want to know, right? But let's be honest, we've all, I mean, now, like, you know, sometimes when you open up a, an academic article, sometimes it's written in such a language that you're like, okay, I'm going to have to get another cup of coffee before I read this. But like, of course, you you know, we're used to doing this because we work in uh, higher ed. And then so, so we're used to it. But for the average person who's an intelligent person who wants to think about the world, often for, it's impenetrable, not only in terms of um, the language, but also, okay, paywalls, everyone, most people probably know where to find articles to download for free. But in terms of just knowing where to look and how to look, that's also a skill as well. So in a sense, then the podcaster becomes a curator. So, you know, in your example, you know, for pe for higher ed practitioners or professionals, they can like scroll through the topics and then they can listen to you have a conversation with one in their field and then d deep dive into that, which is really, really important, right? And I think there's what's I have had to learn over the years. There's a big responsibility because people end up trusting you even those that you've never met before. 
and they sort of turn to, say, Fresh Ed to find the latest material, the latest content. And I'm sure this happens for other podcasts as well in other fields. And you end up realizing, wow, you have a great responsibility, almost as a gatekeeper, right? Similar to those journal editors that are sort of gatekeeping what polished pieces get published. And that I find it's rather confronting. I, I would imagine, I don't know if I live up to that responsibility as much as, as I should in a way. I'm sure you do, because you, you become, I guess, a, a gatekeeper of sorts, but who has a responsibility in a different sense than an editor does, right? Because your responsibility here is partly to the discipline, I guess, and also to your audience. And you have a different relationship with your audience, partly because they hear your voice, because your name is associated with the podcast, right? And so it becomes this very personalized thing over the years, and it sort of pushes you then to be accountable to different communities in ways that an editor of a journal or even an editor of a newspaper is not, right? Often we don't know who these editors are, right? Well, the other thing that I find so interesting, as you're saying, students sort of access this information and it sort of provides them a different avenue into some of these insights. It, it sort of makes the scholarly content rather human. But on at the same time, what, what I also find so fascinating is that students end up listening to this content in times that aren't normally available for sort of scholarly engagement. So when they're doing the dishes or when they're going for a walk, they're sometimes, you know, those earbuds you see everywhere now. So people pop the earbuds in and they're listening to, you know, sometimes they're listening to this these scholarly podcasts and sort of furthering their own knowledge just in times and in spaces that have just usually been completely off limits. And I find that sort of revolutionary. Yeah, I think it's amazing. Like uh, for Easter, we were recording this just before Easter. My parents are coming to visit. And, you know, so I know tomorrow I've got to clean the flat, clean the windows and do all this stuff. So I'm just going to, you know, line up a bunch of podcasts about whatever and have that in my ear. And that's amazing, right? And it fits really well. So I say because something about the way that we consume audio versus the way that we consume text, especially nowadays, digital text and digital audio, it allows for a deep immersion into a topic because you're doing something else that you don't get with text. I know very often now with text, I'm skim reading, you know, and you can't skim read audio or skim listen audio, right? You, it's there, it's in your ear, you're on. If you get if you get bored, you turn it off, right? You don't get to the end. But people do listen to it at like, you know, 1.5, two times speed, which, which is something that I never realized that people do, but that, you know, you can actually listen to a 30-minute podcast in 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I don't like to do that. I like to hear the conversation and the voice, the inflection, all these things. But if it's just information getting on that, all that sort of information, then yeah. But yeah, but again, it's still different, right? Because you're still leaning into it and you still follow the thing, thing through from beginning to end. Like, you know, like, so now, like I clicked on a news article, I read the headline, you know, maybe the beginning, scroll down, like you can't do that with audio, right? It's linear, right? In that the, the digital text isn't. And or any text isn't, which has its advantages and disadvantages in terms of when we're producing um, scholarly things. Because one of the good things about text, of course, is you can go back. Like, you know what? Oh, I didn't quite understand like what was being said there. Like, let me skip back a couple of pages and, and check if I really understood that concept. And you can't really do that with audio. Of course, you could, but people don't. Because mostly, mostly people listen to it with their earbuds, right? Whilst doing something else. And so that, in a sense, is a disadvantage of using a podcast as a form of knowledge production. It has, it has, 
many advantages of course and i think it's great that we work with different mediums but of course it has these disadvantages as well that text is so great for because it's so it's so easy to jump around a text you know i want to sort of pick apart this notion of knowledge production versus knowledge dissemination because i think sometimes i feel that what i do on say fresh ed with interviews is much more knowledge dissemination where you're you're sort of taking someone's article that they've written something they've written about and talking to them to disseminate those ideas to a wider audience that might not go and read the work that was written but it usually always derives from some written piece and i and i worry that it sort of moves away from knowledge production which is sort of creating something new and different and it makes me think that i don't necessarily always use the affordances of audio to sort of disseminate or create knowledge in ways that I could. So, I mean, did you come across this sort of tension in this book that you've put out? Yeah, so some people really are more on, it's a sliding scale, right? So some people are more on like, what we do is dissemination, right? And some people are more like, actually, we're creating we're creating stuff with what we do. And part of it depends, on, of course, on the style of podcast. There's, of course, many different types of podcasts, and I'll talk about them in a moment. But even in a conversation style podcast, like what we're having now, is that, you know, when you're having a conversation, if the host has, you know, is well prepared and, and understands and, and if the guest is willing and open to be able to like talk things through and not just go back to the written thing, then new ideas and insights can come up right uh, within the conversation and uh, and in that sense it's it's something there another sense it could be there in terms of its steps along the way to producing something so like there are some podcasts that people make which are more about thinking through ideas and maybe it's like almost as if the podcast is the first draft of something which then later becomes a paper you know and like so there are podcasts like that as well there are also people who just uh, who make podcasts by interviewing people, but those people they're interviewing are also their, as we would say in anthropology, their interlocutors, you know, the people that they've gone to do research amongst. And that also becomes then, you know, a form of data collection as well. So there's lots of different possibilities. And some people, yeah, really think of it as going out and doing research and, and putting it on out there. So maybe we can listen to Maria Ernstrom Funtes, who I've probably really butchered her name, which I'm sorry about, because she exactly had a project which was both research and and a podcast at the same time. It's both data collection, but it's also dissemination. Okay, so since I'm open about, I will do research about this, but I will also distribute it widely. I'm aware that there are some things that might not be shared with me that could be shared. On the other hand, what was really interesting to see was that people are more willing to participate in this kind of research than the traditional way of doing research. Because as I told you, I did like a double research at one point. And the ones that were participating in the traditional one, they didn't have time for me that many. I had to really negotiate with them to give me that one hour time. While these other ones, of course, I I was kind of familiar with them as well. They were like oh lovely come you can stay at our house for the night if you want to i think it's something about the openness and giving meaning to something more than just that closed academic community that creates meaning also to those that are participating really interesting i actually want to go and listen to her podcast now because i I think that's you know when you start seeing podcasting as a form of research and the people you end up interviewing you do you know 
it sort of crosses into this line of journalism because you're recording these voices that then might be heard, which is not common in the sort of academic space where, you know, you might record someone's voice, but those recordings would never be heard. And the ethics forms would always sort of say you can't show these or share these outside of the research team. Right. But then what was it super interesting? And we should say her podcast is called Worlds in Transition, but that's just a translation and I, it's either in Finnish or in Swedish, which I can't quite remember right now. So you won't be able to listen to it, Will, unless you unless you have a secret uh, language skill that you've not revealed. But uh, yeah, most as I say, most of the people I interviewed make English language podcasts that I could listen that I could listen to. But there was a few in German, which my German's very bad, and then some in Portuguese and some in Chinese, and like so, you know, I couldn't listen to them. But every otherwise, every single person I interviewed, I listened to at least two of their podcasts and and like categorized them and, and, and so on. But yeah, but in terms of like this this ethical dimension. I would actually say it's much more ethically sound than the traditional way we do ethics in the academia. So, you know, as an anthropologist, really, I, I do research in uh, South India. I'm an urban anthropologist. And OK, like I can go and you know interview people and spend time with them, do participant observation. Are they 100 percent fully aware of the way that the data I'm gathering there is going to be used? Not really, you know, as much as I can explain everything to people, it's a it's such a different world. And um, some of the people I was doing research amongst were also not literate. So it's not all very poor, uh, you know, skills in that sense or, or whatever, and or at least in English. So also like having someone sign a form is also a bit nonsense, you know, in that, in that sort of condition. Everyone knows what it means now to record something and put it online. So that's like informed consent there, right? You know, I know that what is going to about to happen to me now is is I'm going to be put out there. You have to tell people, of course. Listen, you're going to be edited. Maybe you're going to, you know, I'm maybe going to use part of you, a part of this interview with you, and 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 you know, combine it together with something else. So there's different ethical questions, and there's different things you need to tell the people. But I think it's it's, it's much more honest in a sense, right? And and in terms of like being properly represented, and of course you can misrepresent people in podcast as well as you can in text. But of course, like you know, those are your words, your emotions in those words being put out there and you're valuing these people as experts in whatever you're interviewing them about and i mean here expertise in 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 a very broad sense you know like whatever you know i maybe i'm doing research amongst flower sellers in india and they're experts on that so i'm but i'm valuing their expertise in such a way that i'm willing to put that out in the world so i think it's a it's a very different form and how it's different from journalism i would say and i'm not good friends who are journalists you know they have a story they need a quote for that story right so, you know, they've, they've put something together. It's like, you know, there's just been an earthquake. I need to get a quote from the, you know, the survivor who's upset about the speed of the response. Then I need to go get a quote from, uh, from the construction company. Then maybe from a politician. They're not sitting down with someone for an hour, you know, exploring in a, you know, in a roundabout way, like deeply their motivations and this and that, and then using an exit rather than going there looking for that quote to put the story together. So I think there's also, it's quite different from journalism in that form. Yeah, it's really quite fascinating. And I think you're right about the ethics. It's sort of a more ethical approach to research in a, in a way. What about creating research sort of quote unquote outputs, if we were to use that very sort of managerialist term, but sort of creating research in sound I think opens up the possibility to be creative in different ways, right? Because you, if you're trying to think about the audience and engaging the audience and making sure you don't lose your audience, that's the worst fear that podcasters have. You have to think about storytelling and you have to think about how you can produce audio and soundscapes and use sound effects to engage that listenership and to tell the story and to share the ideas and to 
you know, bring this research to life, so to speak. In the research you did with these 101 podcasters, were there people creating, you know, these quote unquote creative podcasts, engaging in storytelling in, um, in ways other than, say, the, the interview style podcasts that I'm engaging in with you right now? Yes, definitely. And I spoke with quite a few of those. I would say, firstly, there is also a creativity to this style of podcast as well, right? And it also happened to think about storytelling and so on and so forth. But yeah, so there were people who were making more this like sort of crafted audio. You can listen to two back to back. We could listen to an in very short one from someone who makes interviews, which is uh, Bonnie Stachowik teaching in higher ed, one of the rivals of Fresh Ed, you know, competition across the pond. And then uh, Kent Davis, who makes a podcast called Preserves together with students. And he's a podcast instructor as well. We can listen to those back to back. They have quite different uh, understanding. So I think of myself as a storyteller, but the goal of the storytelling is to envelop people in both the art and the science of teaching mm -hmm. and learning. So I don't want mm -hmm. to pretend that the science isn't there, but I also don't want to bore you to tears such that you would never <laughs> want to learn more. So when we're teaching audio storytelling, we're, we're teaching them how to, you know, find that moment of pause or what interests them. We do a lot of interviews on a food truck that we actually, we have a food truck as well. So We'll have uh, interviewees make us dishes on the food truck and we'll record them. So it becomes like a cooking show slash history show. So we're interviewing them. We do a pre and post interview about their lives. Uh, but in the middle, there's they're, they're cooking something. So it becomes this kind of narrative tool that we can utilize while the, the meal's being made. We can jump around throughout their life or add historical context. We don't just do interviews. Uh, I do a field recording co course as well because uh, having some action, having someone make food or or do something or do a tour of their house or the restaurant or what have you lends itself to kind of, you know, um, segmentation, which is also something that kind of draws people in. So there's like an art form to trying to create these, these stories and I feel like the audio lends itself to telling those stories when you we can actually get up and go and do things and be in the now and then also go back in time. Finding the right time period is difficult to be like, we can only talk about this time period from here to here, and we might be leaving out some context along the way. And that's hard, uh, I find, when it comes to, you know, putting a podcast together because there's stuff I want to drop for the for the sense of the narrative, for the you know sake of the narrative. But then again, we utilize, this is why we utilize footnotes uh, within our scripts, you know, or little notes or sources or other add-ons um, later in the books or stuff like that, that we can, we can um, you know, follow up on that extent. We can't put everything into a podcast, but we can put is, you know, the, what we're trying to find, and this is what I'm teaching the students, is to find that one thing, that moment of pause that one thing you want to explore and then expand on it. You don't want to have a series of things that you're pursuing or it becomes too convoluted, too much stuff. And we're not looking to do like a three, four, five parter of certain topics. Um, we want to touch on them and then maybe we'll we'll add more within, you know, other media like the uh, like a book or a or a story map or something like that. It's really fascinating to hear both of those voices. Um, I think when I was interviewed by you for this book, 
I think it was just before or we just had started something called Fresh Ed Flux. And, and so since then, we've done two seasons of these, you know, rather creative narrative-based podcasts with students. And what Kent and what Bonnie are saying, how these research sort of productions connect to art. And I would also add entertainment because you, you do need to think about the engagement of the audience in a way. And it's sort of working at that nexus between sort of research, entertainment, and art that you're, you know, trying to come up with a 30-minute audio show that is rigorous in its production, is scholarly in its pursuit, is entertaining to listeners, but is also artistic in the use of, of the medium in which we're working in it. To me, it's, it's such a fascinating space to have grown into. And, I, and, you know, what Kent and Bonnie say really resonates with me. Yeah, and I also spoke with Siobhan McHugh, who um, she's based in Australia. She made an amazing podcast called The Art of Darkness about Aboriginal art uh, in Australia. And um, and she was talking about her process, which I, which I detail in the book, where she says, you know, so for her, sound is really key. So she'll never work off a transcript. She said she hates transcripts. Uh, so she'll go, she'll make these interviews, then she'll listen, and then she says i hope i remember everything completely well like she has like a table where she's saying okay what sounds good like and giving it different stars you know this is a this is a five star you know bit of audio right and this other thing is the information is really important but it doesn't sound good maybe because the person fell over the words or whatever or they just didn't sound good but that's the information i need so maybe i'll have to do that as a with a voiceover or some other way you know and then she creates that sort of spine let's say around a particular part of the story and then she'll say okay now what sound do i need to tell that you know if it's a if it's a police officer talking i'm going to need the rustling of the files in the office you know or if someone's getting into a car they're the, you know the door being slammed you know and then so she says she goes and she collects sounds all the time and has like a sound database so that when she needs to put stories together of course you'll want in situ real sounds but sometimes of course that's not possible right so if you interview someone next to a crackling fire you know out in the wilderness in australia what did they call it in australia the bush out in the bush the outback <laughs> out there you know the bush yes then afterwards right you might need to record yourself some some fire noise at home whatever and put it together so to think through all of that i think it's fascinating and i've made like lots of interview podcasts in my life like like you have and now like i i went a while back to, to india started to make a, a podcast not a podcast i don't know what it's going to be an audio documentary or something or whatever it is how to how to categorize it i don't know yet but you know with one of the door-to-door -door sellers i was working with i've spent a whole month with him recording interviews with him and so on putting that together is going to be tough because i have to learn a new skill basically right it, it is it's so tough i can tell you i mean you know with, with the students we work with for fresh head flux it, it takes like 12 months to make a 30 minute podcast and it's quite amazing when when we start with a lot of the students you know they sort of think i know exactly what i'm going to do it's going to take me six weeks and i'll be done and it's the working in sound the thinking in sound that that is really quite hard to do and doing it from the beginning is something we encourage we also do we work with scripts so we do a lot of writing and revision and rewriting but you know we, we quickly bring in sound we want the sound to be on the page in a way it's a really difficult process i must say but also really rewarding in the end you create these just amazing sort of productions that i don't think anyone that starts the journey thinks they would ever come up with what we end up creating in the end and, and so they've just been so valuable for us and i think are really for fresh ed a really nice sort of step in, in a new direction and 
a rather creative direction. The other thing that, you know, Kent and Bonnie brought up that I, I was quite fascinated by was this idea of bringing this back into the classroom, right? And I guess this is something that scholarly podcasting usually affords is that a lot of the people doing it are u working in universities as well. So to what extent are, you know, scholars who podcast bringing it in to their classroom teaching well yeah so in many different ways right so there's that that's what's re that's what's really fascinating and i think it's uh, since i did interviews for the book in 2020 it's it's a fast moving landscape as well which is great okay so you have some people who let's say you work in a field where things really are moving very fast right so uh i interviewed a guy called michael labelle who sort of an uh, an environment he works on like energy let's say energy things changing all the time right and so you know pub papers get published you know one two years it takes to come out right and then so he's like you know what there's this thing we really need to know about for my podcast you know i'm gonna go and like ask this experts you know a practitioner i'm gonna interview them then i'm gonna use that in my class send it as reading whatever for the for the students or listening you know and then like to build it in so there's people who do that which i think is a fascinating thing so if you have a podcast in your field and you're teaching a class on it it's a way of bringing in experts or practitioners or interlocutors in ways that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do then there's people who like what kent was talking about and like what you're talking about in uh, with uh, fresh ed flux is working together with students to produce something which is super valuable for students because they really love it like they really really get into it i like um i've also worked with students to produce more like these interview style podcasts but if again it's really really important they're learning how to interview they're learning how to edit they're learning how to organize their time they're you know and they're making something which is public they take it more seriously you know like uh, after a while every student knows how to do a paper in a day if they're late but they're with a deadline you can't do it you can't but you can't do a podcast in a day if you've not planned it you need to go and get all that audio put it all together so that's really great as well and then you have of course lots of people who put um, podcasts as assignments um, sorry podcast as as um listenings within syllabi as well which is which is really really great and i think students like this diversity of media and i interviewed a guy robert huish uh, and he has this global development primer podcast and i think he's really interesting if we listen to him then we can talk a bit more about teaching and the idea is to try to create a repository of podcasts that it can keep up with an international development intro course in a changing world. So I will try to do probably the between three or four seasons a year and 10 podcasts each on, on average. So you're looking maybe 40 a year that will come out. And from there, I can pick and choose what works best for, for whoever. Now in class, there's, a, there's two sections of the class that includes sort of 10 modules each. So in the class, the podcasts are stacked in this way. There's what they call a core, and that's very didactic. That's, that's me kind of lecturing uh, to you, and there's visuals. And uh, we're, we're, we're clarifying points. Uh, I'm telling stories. We're sharing anecdotes. But that's the basis of whatever the topic is. So if it's neoliberalism, it's globalization, it's colonialism, whatever. Those all stay locked behind the university firewall. So those do not get released. They comprise the core content of the class. And then from there, it's not visible in the public format, but in the class itself, the podcasts are categorized in two areas. And one's called expert analysis and the other is development and action. And expert analysis is where I find someone who's able to speak as an expert to the theme of that week. So if it's, we're talking about colonialism, uh, as opposed to just sitting down and looking at the bullet points or, you know, re reinterpreting Edward Said or others, uh, I'll find someone who can discuss colonialism with me over a 30-minute 30, 30 chat. And 
then the third one is called development in action where we feature uh, someone who's doing active research and development the the expert analysis is key because if you've got a lot of students who are foreign to canada and english is not their first language they may not grapple with what colonialism the the or neoliberalism or other sort of jargoned word is just by bullet points rather they can get a deeper sense of it through conversational association so you and i sitting down for a half hour and just chatting about it um, is effectively a, a really important tool for english as a second language learners really quite fascinating i mean the the role of the professor becomes sort of curating this content across so many different mediums and pulling it together into these sort of digital learning spaces that I guess are quite common now for students in universities. Fascinating. But if I think about like how I like to be as a teacher, there's always some part of, let's say, let's forget podcasting completely. But if I was planning a class in a non-podcasting world, I would probably have maybe 20 minutes at some point within the, you know, 100 minutes that I have or whatever hour and a half that I have, where I might have a mini lecture, you know, 15, 20 minutes on a topic. Then I would have the students try to explore something through conversation, maybe then a close reading of a text or, you know, or maybe whatever, some larger group discussion or whatever. So it's similar like this. You're helping students in a way by curating knowledge. You're helping them understand something in many different ways. So it's similar. This has just been sort of used in a podcast form. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, using different medium to do so. So, you know, now that you've sort of thought about podcasting, scholarly podcasting quite widely, I think you probably have talked to the most scholar podcasters in the world. I don't know, you know, 101 is quite a lot. What would you say, you know, is the, the what's next for the, the medium? What's next for scholarly podcasting? Or where would you like to see it go in the future? I'll tell you my opinion, but before that, let's have the opinion of Neil Fox, who does the cinematologists, because I think he has a good take as well. Okay, let's be utopian. I think it can liberate academia. I think that it can provide a space to do the things that academia says it wants to do. You know, culture wants to do, industry wants to do, all this stuff saying we want to do this stuff. Well, podcasting is a space to actively do that. You know, it's actively a way to reach outside the walls of academia in terms of where your content goes and where your knowledge goes. It's an active way to cultivate and welcome diverse voices, either through decolonizing the curriculum or actively kind of employing people from different backgrounds and kind of celebrating and supporting their work and their voice and their perspective. I think it's limitless, potentially. Do you share that idea that it's limitless, that it's utopian, that it's sort of revolutionary? It's sort of reimagining higher education in total. I would say it could be, but we have to be fully aware of the structures within which we uh which we work. And in fairness, like, cause I just put an excerpt there, like, from, from Neil, he's, he's, he goes on and talks about the problems with, you know, higher education. He's also based in the UK, like yourself. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, this is the, this is for me, the future of scholarly podcasting could go in, in many different ways, but there's a tension there. On the one hand is, I think it should be better understood, acknowledged in, the systems we have of of evaluating what work we do as scholars as a real a real quote-unquote real thing you know it's not just some fluff right it's actual work it's intellectual engagement it's creating knowledge etc and so on and this means um i think as a group of people who make um, podcasts we need to get better at making them citable have you know transcripts wherever possible of course these things are, are time consuming to make sure that you know we've not talked about it but there are 
podcasters who put their podcasts out for peer review to get things reviewed in different ways as well and all of these things i think are really really important about creating legitimacy have them critiqued the same way we critique other things because that's what we do with knowledge it's good so that's great and i think these things have to happen but at the same time i would be wary that they get pulled into the matrices of higher education ranking and all of this complete nonsense right i really don't want it to be that i don't want to say okay i don't want people to say okay this year i need to produce certain amount of articles for you know uh, you know for certain you know q1 q2 journal whatever and then i need to do a podcast and i need to do whatever and then they just do it for that reason right just so it becomes a line on a cv this would be terrible right and the same way if we look at podcasting outside of scholarly worlds you know it started off as this really indie diy sort of world you know just you know people in their basement you know just recording stuff putting it out there in the world and now it, it has become in many ways this quite um i say neoliberalized commercial yeah I, was, I didn't want to use the word neoliberal but i just did anyway like neoliberalized thing you know or whatever you know like you know um you know some celebrity says i want to have a podcast and they you know record a podcast of it's terrible, you know, and they'll instantly have more listeners than uh, than Fresh Ed has, right? And uh, I don't know how many listeners you have. I'm sure you have millions, but uh, you know, but I'm sure Prince, but I'm sure Prince Harry, you know, had more, you know, when he just like put out a one episode of a podcast and then stopped, right? And this is also this is a problem, right? So so in the same in the same way, I wouldn't want it just to become that. I also wouldn't want it just to become a university publicity thing, you know. And you know, universities, of course, like to like to do that, but. You know, so it, so I think it has to keep its punk DIY edge, and it has to basically be a way. I mean, I don't think podcasting is about saving higher education in terms of all the problems of higher education when it comes to uh, the um, the way knowledge is produced now in such a former sort of way. But it, but it, but it could intervene and open up new potential and new possibility to do things differently. You know, and I think it's a really rich human way of of being a scholar, right? Of actually, you know, having conversations with people, of being generous, being open, being collaborative. And I think that's really, really great and really, really important and thing we should hold on to. Because of course, I know everyone complains about their job and academics maybe complain more than other people about their jobs. But like, but it's like, but it's, but it's fun. It's joyous, right? It's great fun to make a podcast. It reminds us all the time. The same way you have, when you have a good class as a teacher and it's a great conversation, you're like, yeah, this is why I do it, right? And, uh, and the same with a podcast. You're like, wow, yeah, this is great this is why i do this as a job because we're creating stuff we're learning stuff we're following our curiosity we're trying to ch and at the same time all of this is changing i hope for the better from the side from below the structures that within which we work well ian cook thank you so much for joining fresh head again i couldn't agree with you more on how you see the future of academic podcasting congratulations on your new book and um let me know and let us know when your podcast is out great will do thanks a lot will Ian M. Cook's new book is Scholarly Podcasting. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Freshhead are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Freshhead, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Fatih Octus, Oba Femmeangunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Chaimensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shocktip Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.